0: No pressure for us to get straight to substance, but um I am just I'm so excited to have you You here. I've been I've been following you with awe and just be like, she's saying the
1: things. Oh my god, I love you. I was reading your bio and I was like, gosh, she's so incredible. So this will just be a mutual love fest. Let me turn off my self-view so I don't get so conscious.
0: Welcome to Making It an Opera, a podcast about what it really means find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Hey friends, just a reminder off the bat that if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I am so excited to share this conversation with Jillian Page, singer, actress, producer, certified mermaid, and creator of Meisner & Music. Jillian is a ball of bubbling light who not only went through years as a classically trained singer, feeling like she could only prioritize singing or acting, but not both. But she also went through a major personal loss, all while feeling she had to push the grief away, clinging to positivity. It was in this space that she walked into her first Meisner acting class. As she puts it, That class allowed her to do three things she'd never been able to do before. Safely tap into the darkness and grief she had been holding in. Get out of her analytical head and stop thinking about technique. And sing with both emotional and vocal freedom. She saw the potential to help other singers with this. And in 2017, Meisner and Music was born, as she writes, in a sweaty studio in Ripley Greer in New York City. Now in its ninth season of classes, they are in a new space in the theater district, and they have helped singers and voice teachers ranging from Broadway professionals to recent college grads to find both an acting technique and a path to falling in love with singing again. Their tagline is, helping singers to live in the moment, trust their voices, and know that they are enough. It's about reconnecting our expression to our experiences, feeling the connection between our bodies, our emotions, our voices, and the moment that we're in, rather than trying to compartmentalize any part of that equation, as so many of us have been taught to do in our classical music education. As you'll hear in this interview, this is deep work that unearths trauma. And while Meisner is not therapy, it is therapeutic. It's a vein of thinking that has led Jillian down a path of studying, implementing, and amplifying the work of researchers, clinicians, and therapists in the voice and trauma field. As luck would have it, this episode is going live right as you have a chance to register for their Trauma-Informed Singing Intensive, a two-day virtual intensive, on June 11th and 12th, 2022, with early bird registration open until May 4th and the link is going to be in the show notes. I came across Jillian's work during a typical evening Instagram scroll after beginning to air the first season of Making It an Opera when I came across a powerful slide deck from Meisner and Music on the impacts of a Western music education. It was a deck that basically summarized everything I had been learning in making this podcast, conversation by conversation, about the hollow, competitive, and often isolating practices of our current classical music industry, and the alternative ways of being and creating that are right under our noses if we just step back and listen to the voices our culture has been silencing. Following their account alone has helped me think differently about what is even available to us in our expression as singers. And I hope this conversation will open up some new possibilities for you too. So I do want to get into talking about you (laughs) and why I'm so so excited to have you because um, you, you came across my radar. I think you had like a carousel that went a little viral, at least in singer communities. And um, it was, it was actually about, I'm trying to remember which one it was because I've just adored all of your carousels ever since um but I think it was the the effects of colonization on the way we make our art and the way we tell our stories and I oh my god I think that is so important and we're going to get into that and your like incredible value add to your social media like if we're just going to talk about it technically (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm saying this as a copywriter for uh Life coaches and spiritual healers online. Oh wow. So like I look at it that way too, like as an artist and as like, look at that value add. That is so
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think about that every time I write something. I'm like, is this for just Jillian or is this gonna help people? And I'm if it's if it's the former, I uh or wait the latter, the former, then I I won't post it. Good
0: for you. (laughs) Good for you. That's not always easy. And that is something that I kind of I find myself walking the line up for my clients and thinking, okay, like to a certain extent, there are things that you're going to want to say for yourself that somebody else needs to hear. Sure. So like, what do we put out there that, that does that, but how, how can we also make sure we're delivering that value? 100%.
1: Yeah. And it's so such a fine line between making it personalized and telling it from what your journey has been, but also saying it in a way that maybe would resonate with, more than one person <laughs> not just feel like a journal entry or a therapy session for you. Yeah,
0: yeah and I think so much of that comes from how do we communicate out of our power rather than out of like the places where we were hurt at the time like mm-hmm. yeah, you yeah. know yeah and I, I think that is that's such a change in the way we tell stories, especially in the way we tell stories about, um, people who we may see in society as disadvantaged in some way yeah we've gotten so accustomed to seeing people in their um, in the places where they need rather mm. than in the places where like we need them I think is that a yeah, good way of putting it
1: absolutely it's a beautiful way of putting it
0: so this is that that was a whole tangent guys <laughs> But like okay. season two is all about healing and recalibration. Yes. And it's the two things I have found, like when I look back at my journey, it's the two things that I had to do when I decided to stop living according to and like making my art according to what I saw as an industry's expectations. And when I started deciding to make art on my own terms, I had to heal all of the places where I felt I felt not enough, Mm -hmm. like all of the places that didn't fit into this box and then recalibrate and be like, wait, okay, I don't even know who I am right now. And so I I want to go into your journey with that on your Meistering Music website. I'm going to actually link your bio because I think you tell your story in such a beautiful way. And it's like this choose your own adventure of your personal life and your artistic life. On the personal side, you your repeated like mantra is I push those parts of myself away clinging to positivity. And then in your professional life, you talk about this disassociation, like or this dissociation. I could only prioritize singing or acting, not both. Totally. So I'd love to kind of hear your path getting there. And I know it has a lot of like pretty dramatic twists and turns.
1: Yeah. The reason I wrote my bio in a choose your own adventure was because I, I was trying to me- beforehand, trying to meld this great, uh, personal loss and how that drove me to create miser music with also all of these Western, um, musical education, things that had been born into us that also made me want to create miser music and know that singers needed that. So I was like, you know, there's no, it, it would be so trite almost to try to weave them in together. So let me just tell two separate stories, but the, the Western musical education one is based in what so many of us have experienced <laughs> Which is that when I got to undergrad for classical vocal performance, I wanted to be an opera singer and I had actually chosen Belmont University where I did my undergrad because they had a commercial voice program and I initially mm-hmm. thought I wanted to be a pop singer and mm-hmm. then I went to governor school and was like maybe opera is more of an option for me. But I had a really damaging experience. I was questioned constantly if this is what I really wanted to do. I was never given leads, despite, I believe, being fully able to play them. But I just was constantly brought down and made to feel like I wasn't enough and my voice wasn't enough. And it was silly of me to want this career. Mm -hmm. While I think that a lot of that was coming from a good place, I really, really do. I also think our teachers are so pained and my teacher in particular. (sighs) Yeah, I think that the way that we treat each other in the classical world can have a lot of impact on how teachers then talk to us and treat us. Mm
0: -hmm. And one
1: thing that I heard all through undergrad and my students seem to hear a lot too, is don't cry because. The audience will get worried for you. If you cry while you sing, you have to hold it together so that the audience can cry. Have you heard that before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And what I found once I discovered the miser technique for myself is that what the voice doesn't know how to work with is trying to control in any capacity. So when we're crying If we're trying to stop the crying and still sing, that's going to be, a recipe for disaster, but if we allow the crying and allow this bodily function, that is actually so similar to singing, crying out and letting this visceral emotion run through us, then the voice knows exactly what to do with it. And I've seen over and over in class, people have tears streaming down their face and still being able to sing so beautifully. And in a way that moves us and lets us have our experience through them. So anyway, yeah, I just felt that is, I have to say
0: that has, that has been like a game changer for me to watch because you, you post like videos of, of these moments. And I was definitely raised with that idea of almost like we're the facilitator of the emotion, but we're not the people who are allowed to have it. Oh yes. And, uh, I I'm watching this and just thinking
1: that's possible. Holy shit. That's actually possible. It's, we get to like be part of this. Yeah. We get to tap into this thing that I, I felt so often was only for pop singers or musical theater singers and and their voices sounded not great when that would happen, you know, but so in undergrad, I had this like blanked over look, that's just thinking about technique all the time. And it felt like I could really do well in straight acting scenes when it was just text. But then when I would go into singing, I would go right back into what I call singer mode and be just not myself. At all. And then mm-hmm. even in a uh, graduate school, I feel like I had separate acting classes and then I had sure a musical theater workshop, but it really felt like I either got to think about my voice and make sure she was doing well, or that I got to think about the emotions and the voice was compromised. So Meisner really helped me to figure out that we can be doing something extremely technically difficult, like manipulating a voice while also remaining so in the moment and true to our emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's the technical side of things. The personal side of things is that I think this is so common for femme presenting people, but throughout life, I was lauded for being positive. I did really well in comedic roles. And I therefore thought that my cheeriness and bright attitude was such a virtue of mine. And it is, but I, I really clung to like, did you read the secret around
0: 2007? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Honey, I write for spiritual healers. You would not believe how deep I am into that. But if there's something you feel like you need to explain for my audience, you go right ahead.
1: <laughs> you know, I think so many of us artists probably read the secret, but I clung to, th- oh, wait, do we curse on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I clung to that shit. Much, on my to, life. <laughs> much to the chagrin of my parents, but yeah. <laughs> like, not again, I know. I know. Well, I, I curse like a sailor. So excellent. I'll try to hold it in. Awesome. No, um, don't worry about it. Don't suppress any part of yourself, please. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I I clung to that shit. I loved positivity. And then I feel like I really... um, fed into the toxic positivity movement that we all went through. Mm. Then in my uh, graduate school experience, I met Michael Schaefer, who was an incredible big tenor. He was so lovely and funny and we fell in love. And then about a year and a half into dating, he was like, I have had this canker sore on my tongue forever. And then we kept waiting for it to go away. He even went to a dentist that was like, we should biopsy it. And then they just decided not to, that still Mm. blows my mind. But right when he was about to enter into DePaul university for his vocal performance masters, the week of registration, he finally got an ENT appointment in Chicago and they saw it and said, we will biopsy this, but I'm 90% sure this is cancer. And so even throughout that entire journey with Michael battling cancer, I clung to positivity, I believed in miracles, which is great and can really help the healing process, but Michael and I did it too an extreme that I wish I could go back. I think it was what I needed to do at the time to get through it, but I wish I would have enjoyed my time with Michael more and been like, these might be the last months and moments rather than these absolutely cannot be the last months and moments. Mm -hmm. So he battled cancer for eight months. We got engaged and married within that eight months and 11 days after we got married, he passed away relatively unexpectedly, despite him having cancer So in that whole thing, I was like, I am resilient though. And so I will keep going. And I really survived off Moxie. And it wasn't until about two years after he died that it really hit me that it happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, that corresponded with taking Meisner for the first time. It was like something that I could throw my energy into and I loved it. And it taught me that all of these parts of myself, light and dark were welcome in my art. And also that there's a safe way to do it. that mm. won't disrupt your healing process and your psyche as a human being, which a lot of acting techniques disregard. Mm. So I just think the technique is phenomenal. It is my own Meissner teacher says it's therapeutic it's not therapy but it is therapeutic
0: mm. and
1: it really made me think singers have got to get a hold of this because yeah. it was so mindless and freeing for me as both a human being and a performer
0: and i think it's so like it's so powerful what you're talking about of having having a place where it's safe for you to feel because just generally as a person i'm in my mid 30s now and I'm looking around at friends and myself included that it's like you get to this point in life where if there's stuff you haven't dealt with, it's like ballooned up to the point where the bag is getting too heavy.
1: Yeah.
0: And if you, if you don't have the courage or the ability or the support to unpack that bag, it's going to stop you because it's wow. too heavy and you still have to hold on to it you're like chained to it yeah. and like what you're talking about is is using this technique for your art form to mm-hmm. actually unpack that bag and yeah. and I think oh god what I love so much about it is like I think part of the reason that I gosh this interview is not about me but I'm just going to say this
1: Thinking <laughs> about <you. laughs>
0: um I think part of the deep inner reason and not all of like the great empirical like reasons to yeah. f- that I had to leave pursuing an opera career like intensely was it just didn't feel real like I got to this point where it all felt so fucking phony yeah. and I really value honesty <laughs> Yeah, like even if I was being uh, even if I felt like I was being honest on stage, I felt like so much of the process and so much of the way we interact, even as colleagues. And man, I love my colleagues Sure. like there's so much we're hiding from each other and so much. We're so afraid to feel like and it goes it goes right down to how we're taught technique and how we're taught. We're supposed to facilitate the emotion and not have
1: it totally. Totally. And we're supposed to go through this really difficult journey as an artist, the ups and downs, the in-between jobs, and then not talk all about the it. All yes. the
0: criticism. Yes.
1: Yeah. All the jumping through hoops. All the,
0: yeah. And we're not allowed, we just have to take it.
1: Yeah. I know. I know. I think about someone in my life who every time I talk to them, They recite to me what they're doing, what's coming up for them. And it hurts. My ego is a little bit hurt, but then I have to think this poor person is in pain and they're telling me this because they want me to feel like they're valued and that's where their value comes from. So it's not about Jillian. It's about whatever's going on for them, but we Keep thinking that we have to have this website that says coming up and this season I'm doing three different works and hashtag thrill to announce. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so blessed. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I, the girls.
0: The girls are the women I interviewed um, from the podcast thrill to announce. I <laughs> love one of their first episodes where they're talking about the name, and Perry says. It should really be hashtag relieved to announce.
1: Oh my God. You're so right. (laughs) Isn't it true? I'm relieved to announce. I booked something for the first time in two years and my grandma will stop asking for two more months. Yeah. It's wild. My uncle said to me the last time I saw him something stupid, like, you know, I can't wait until you, um, what does he say? I know you're going to make it someday is what he said. And I was Ah! like, I know I was like, dude, I'm in New York. I'm making like art, I'm doing things that fulfill me. And I just got out of personal training. I was a personal trainer for 10 years, mm-hmm. but even if I was still personal training as supplemental income, that's, I'm still doing the thing I'm living my dream and making it. So it's just so funny. This, I loved relieved to announce that. It's so hysterical. <laughs> I'll put that on my website. Next time I book something <laughs> that I'm, I'm relieved. <laughs> <laughs> i'm gentleman again (laughs) um
0: yeah totally and i i love that you said make it um yeah but yeah because i i came to america Uh after being in germany and being in professional choruses i came to america and i was like i'm gonna make it now and like i had this understanding that so many people have that like making it looks like this yeah and if you're ambitious you want that And so much of that process then becomes a bid for approval.
1: And when it's not a bid for approval, what is it? Mm -hmm. You're so right. And I think, um, I went to the Met the other day and I was thinking about my former dream to perform at the Met. And I think a lot of the making it would look like that, but I had to remind myself since undergrad, you've done so many other things being married and finding a partner was a huge priority to me. And I did that twice, you know, it's like. (laughs) I moved to, I love, oh my gosh. I think my ultimate dream now would to be to live in a regional city and be pretty high demand in in a community rather Mm -hmm. than in a big one. So I did that. And then I moved to New York. We've done all of these things, but we don't, um, and I think this is a huge part of colonialism. We don't value those because we think we have to be a commodity. That means it looks like the Met, or it looks like, um, an international career that's booked all year. Mm Mm-hmm yeah yeah
0: Uh, and it keeps us back so much and it keeps it keeps us in this box what you are doing with Meisner is about getting people out of that box and so I'd love to hear like what kind of boxes are you seeing people like carrying in when they come into Meisner like what are you helping them work through
1: A lot of stuff about type and my voice shouldn't sing this kind of genre. Mm. I shouldn't sing this because that role is not my type, but also type in the sense of emotional release. I have watched someone walk out of a Meisner class because he was afraid to tap into his anger totally legitimate. Mm -hmm. I hope he comes back to my, it wasn't my class, but so much of this emotional, I'm not allowed to feel that. And 100%, I'm not allowed to feel that in my singing, these Mm. types that come with our socioeconomic status, the color of our skin, our educations or lack of educations with voice. It's so interesting how much baggage people come in with and feel like I'm not allowed in so many capacities. Mm. And when you give them that space and that permission. What do you see start to open up. Usually it reminds me of a pot boiling over because sometimes people can get scared away. The pot will boil over and there's a lot of crying or inability to sing when that pot is boiling over. But the more that we can test the temperature and know when the time is of boiling, how can I get it there to where I can still sing and get through this emotional moment, but not feel like I'm losing it. I think Mm. the more that we try that recipe over and over again, it becomes easier to tap into emotions, but to not let them run us. I think that's the big fear with being emotional while singing that it's going to overwhelm us. And honestly, it's a a correct fear because if we're not used to tapping in emotionally, as we sing, it will run us and it will catch us by surprise. If we go too deep,
0: you actually have a class. I was looking for the I'm looking for the name of it, but I'm just going to ask you, since you know, Yeah, Um, you have a class about like trauma informed singing. Is that the right way of characterizing it? Can you talk about, did you go to actually a trauma, like a trauma certification or whatever it's called to do this? Or what did you, how did you kind of create it? And what's the process that you guide people through in that?
1: Yeah. It's been a semester of trauma-informed work and it was based a lot on the work of Dr. Elisa Monti. She is an incredible trauma specialist and vocalist, and she helps people both with therapy and through their voices to do trauma-informed work. Um, her website is voiceandtrauma.com. Okay. So she, there are only about 11 articles about the voice and trauma, and they're all on that website. <laughs> it's, it's devastating. That's wild. That's
0: shocking, in fact.
1: Right. The trauma, even the word trauma and normalizing it more so than just like being at war, really is a recent thing, as recent as the 80s, -hmm. with the book, Oh, and I'm sure you know this being in the spiritual world, but the body keeps the score. That was really the Mm -hmm. first book that said, We've almost all of us been through trauma. So, Aliza hosted a talk the other week too, in which the professionals were talking about how the voice and trauma is also hard to measure because we as vocalists are so volatile and emotional. And it's hard to get what is actually happening in a singing experience in something that can be replicated and measured. So there are a lot of reasons that the voice and trauma is not huge yet, but Aliza is spearheading this work and just an amazing collaborator. So she inspired me to do this semester where we're looking at the whole definition of trauma-informed work, I think is beautifully put into this idea of it's not what's wrong with me and my voice. It's what happened to me and my voice. Mm. So we've spent Mm -hmm. this semester looking at research on the voice and trauma research on emotions and singing, and then just having group discussions and journal prompts about the things that have impacted our singing abilities, emotionally, physically, viscerally, um, and just having discussions. There's no treatment. There's no diagnosing. We're just opening up awareness about what happened to me and why do I sing this way. And I think the awareness and the curiosity is where the healing comes in. Not putting something on it now. Let's fix it or a tool.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I think that's so. This whole discussion of trauma i mean it, it's such a buzzword now yeah and it can get kind of in the direction of like oh we're just throwing out trauma again it's sure. a word but it's also i think it's so beautiful and it's really opening up something for us in our culture that like we can connect we can sit with a thing that happened and just be with it yeah and we don't have to fix it it's not like our whole lives and our whole selves are not necessarily things to fix.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I was also interested in the work you're doing with voice teachers, Yeah, because I do think that, you know, you can't just check who you are at the door
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and people are, there is a lot of passing of pain Mm -hmm. between voice teacher and student.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'd love to hear what your, what your experience with voice teachers is like how they're Yeah.
1: It's interesting that you talked about just being with what's happening because it makes me think of voice teacher experiences that I've had in the past. And once I got to grad school, I had the most incredible voice teacher, Dr. Frank Ragsdale, and he made me feel like, oh, this is not a big deal it's just breath it's just support it's just resonance whatever in every single issue it wasn't a huge issue it was just like oh yeah this is all that's happening whereas in the past I especially my undergrad experience I felt like there was something so inherently wrong with me and my voice and it Mm. needed a wealth of tools I remember my sweet well she's not sweet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my undergrad teacher who I think had good intentions. And that's why I call her sweet. But she said to me one time rubbing her temples, I just don't know what to do with you, Jillian, because I've given you all the tools I have. And I was mm. like, "What? what? And I worked mm. so hard in undergrad to be a better singer. And I, but I think that hard work and those hours of practice more so than any of my peers, I felt didn't get me anywhere because I felt like I was so wrong and that there was so much fixing to be done. And then once I got to graduate school and had Dr. Frank Ragsdale, it was like, oh yeah, we're good. We just got to, it's just a, a small thing and just being with it vocally. And Meisner is the exact same thing. Meisner is sitting with the emotion. So if you're nervous, Meisner says, be nervous. If you're anxious mm-hmm. when you're about to sing, we can only assume that the character is also feeling anxious. There is no wrong way to be. And what's been amazing to witness too with Meisner in music is how the voice knows how to support the emotion that you're having. There is no emotion that your voice would be like, I'm not sure how to handle this. Like I said earlier, the only thing the voice doesn't know how to handle is you're trying to control it. So anger or bringing a heavy mechanism up when we didn't expect to, but that's what the emotion is calling for. We have to trust that our voices and our bodies at all times have our backs and that it's going to be safe to go there.
0: Mm. And it's almost like teaching the student how to have their own back in a way, teaching the singer.
1: Totally, that there's nothing wrong with what's going on for me, vocally or emotionally. And that sometimes, even in Miser Music, we talk about if I'm feeling tense, if my voice is feeling tense, then how does that make me feel? Oh, I feel frustrated with myself. Okay, then put that mm-hmm. right into the moment rather than trying to be like, everything's fine, nothing's tense, I just have to reset on this next breath. No, let that be tense. And what is incredible to see is that once we accept, oh, I'm tense, I'm so frustrated. And our bodies relax and typically what happens is our voices end up doing exactly what we wanted them to do by just giving into the moment. Mm.
0: It's a level of vulnerability that I think the entire opera industry <laughs> has to learn how to have, you know, yeah. and I'm wondering your thoughts because it's, it's something that I've thought a lot about is like some of it is that this industry pipeline and the way we have set up this industry to you know, to have specific centers and a specific process to get to that center. That it's like we've tried to take all of the vulnerability out of the art. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've tried to take all of the vulnerability out. And we're left with this with this shell, you know. Yeah. And we're wondering why nobody wants to see it. Yeah. I'm not saying nobody, but you.
1: Right. Know. Completely. I think I used to think that only musical theater was for that kind of um, vulnerability, but then also the musical theater world has its own veneer of falsity mm. that we got to work through in a different way. But yeah, I'm completely with you. I will say I went to go see Poor Game Bess um, a couple weeks ago at the Met, and it was so phenomenal the emotion on stage was such in the right direction of what i hope we're headed in but you're right that i think a lot of times and in opera it makes sense because the the caliber of the voice that we expect to hear in opera is a certain thing but i firmly Mm -hmm. believe that our vulnerability and emotional expressions can go hand in hand with that and when we tap into our experience as a singer the audience gets to be like i see that person Annette Benning has this beautiful quote telling my secrets and it's Mm. almost embarrassing. You're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know they had the same secret as me, but you're the one claiming to be an artist. So you have to be the one brave enough to bury your soul on stage like that. But then with opera, we have this hierarchy of sound that we also have to uphold. So it's tricky. Mm -hmm. It is. It's totally tricky. And, um, I mean,
0: I think the thing that I, still love so much about the classical technique and classical singing is that it is it is all about removing every obstacle that your voice could have from coming out
1: totally like
0: for the longest time I thought about that as just like a physical like tension thing like literally remove every obstacle but it is it's so much deeper than that and it's just as deep as that right Mm -hmm. And. I did want to ask you because this conversation is going on in so many different places in the performing arts, especially in opera. Like everybody looked around last year and was like, oh wait, we're really racist. Yeah, <laughs> I Yeah, um, exactly. And I, I do think that the work that's coming out of the Met right now and out of a lot of other places, there's a really exciting piece um, at the Dutch National Opera and Ballet uh, that came out recently, and i'm curious like I think a lot of that is coming out of this discussion and like the bravery of a lot of artists, especially artists of color, like speaking up and saying what 's not working yeah. and i 'm curious what else is making you really excited right now in these fields and I mean, because you actually coach everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> Broadway and opera, so mm-hmm what work is coming out right now where you're like, yes,
1: that. Yeah. I think the stuff that's coming out that excites me the most is that, which doesn't have any qualifiers. And I mean that mm-hmm. by not saying I am not enough. So I want you all to know, I know that, but I'm going to do this, but just being what it is and putting that work mm-hmm. out there unapologetically. And two things came to mind um, when you asked this one was, I- <sighs> Right after we talk about racism, I hate a lot of white men, but I will. And then <laughs> some of them are getting it right, right? They are. Some of them are trying. trying. And <laughs> I mean, we're all trying. It's yeah. trying.
0: I mean, not all of us, but okay.
1: Anyway, I know. Well, <laughs> that's another rabbit hole, isn't it? But yes, Rob McClure and Mrs. Doubtfire really made me think of this idea of being unapologetic and not qualifying what it is because obviously he's not Robin Williams and he's Mm -hmm. not the greatest, most technical singer I've ever heard, but to watch his performance as Mrs. Doubtfire fully owning what he brought to the role was so inspiring to me. And then another not asking, not apologizing that came to mind was my student, Emily Klein. And she, the other day in class, one student said, I really want to do bridges. I have to play Francesca. And Emily said, oh, I'm going to produce that. Even if it's just a room full of people, I'm going to put this on. And so they got to talking, I know. And it's like things like that, where we're just saying, I want to see Bridges done. It's probably so expensive and so difficult to put on, but why don't we just sit in a room and sing through the songs together and be able to put it on our resume? That kind of stuff really excites me with no, like I said, qualifiers, no saying, I know I'm not the best for this. No, just do it. And that makes me really excited for the direction we're headed in. Yeah, just make the thing.
0: It's like what I was hearing from what you were saying is that there's, we're moving from, I guess from this cultural value of perfection or perceived perfection yeah. to, to maybe, ex- maybe accepting
1: a cultural value of honesty. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And I think, um, right. Just saying I in the grand scheme of things may not be the most technically proficient person to sing this song or the person who understands this character experience, at its depth, but I'm the person who feels called to sing it now in this moment. And that therefore makes me the expert on this song in this moment. I'm the expert of how I sing this, or like my student, Emily, I'm the expert of how this version of Bridges is going to be done. Rob McClure is the expert on his version of Mrs. Doubtfire.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And I think also this, I had to do that um, in, in this project that kind of, got me out of the space of needing other people to give me opportunities. Yeah. And the, the one mantra I kind of had to repeat to myself is I don't care if anyone's there. I have to make this. I have to be the kind of person who makes this. That's wow. I'm gonna make it.
1: Oh, I love
0: that. And that it, it makes the hurdle so much lower.
1: Yeah. because <laughs> It's
0: literally like, if I'm even standing alone in the room, even though like, I want to share this. I'm sharing it I did it.
1: Yeah. It makes me think of the trauma informed work that we're doing because I am certainly not the best person to facilitate this, but it means mm. a lot to me and I've had experiences with it. So really not who better but like I have a class where I can teach this stuff and harness um these emotional discussions. So you have to do it and there has to be a humility with it that we still have to keep learning and keeping it open. Like this is not the definitive, um, end all be all, but really who better to, to start a trauma-informed semester. Certainly people are better, but I have this, this way that I can do it and I feel called to. So I think that's Mm -hmm. enough.
0: Mm, Like the fact that you are doing it.
1: Right. Right. And I think we are,
0: it's also like remembering this one, like paradigm shift that I think would be so powerful for all of us artists to remember is the people on the other side of the audition table are people too. Yeah. And they're not like we're in this whole structure as a society of thinking of putting people up on pedestals. Like people in power are up here on pedestals. Totally. And yes, they may have power, but they're people are getting knocked off of their pedestal all the time. All the time. It actually can help us make a thing. If we realize I'm just like this person that's up here on the pedestal.
1: Totally. Absolutely. And I think, especially with classical sound or even legit, you know, I hate that legit musical theater, but golden (laughs) age musical theater, we can feel like, well, I don't sing it like Kelly O'Hara or Audra McDonald. So I shouldn't be the one singing it, but they are people too. And if I, sing this song for a reason. And I'm having an emotional experience singing it. I think this needs to be heard by someone today. Maybe it's not the best rendition of Mr. Snow that anyone's ever heard, but it's something that I want to share because it means something to me. And I guarantee if we go in with that impulsiveness and openness, it will mean something to the person behind the table because we're just humans sharing in this experience. That's all art is.
0: Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like the difference between trying to make art and trying to make fame. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the most powerful things for me, even over the last year, was to realize how I had been seeking so long for people to see me. Mm -hmm. And when Mm -hmm. things started actually being meaningful was when I started to dedicate myself to seeing people. And I started to kind of see myself too.
1: Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing in class, the permission that I give to other people to let your emotions be what they are when you sing. And if your voice is tense, let it be tense. But then in my own singing, I I think, well, you're not a good singer. So you do Mm. have to worry about technique and you can't be in the moment while you sing. And it's like, Mm. no, teach yourself what you teach other people. But the more that we can be giving to others... There is this stunning quote. Can I read you a quote really quick? Yes, please. Okay. Let me pull this up really quickly. It is so beautiful and so apt for what we're talking about. I think I'll be able to find it quickly. Okay. There's this quote that I want to read you. It is by Pat Rodegast. And she says, if you do not love and you believe you must allow others to see what you do not love, they will see through it, through the lens of your presentation. Will you receive judgment? Of course, because you are giving it with judgment, judgment mm-hmm. is a part of what you were showing judgment evokes judgment, just as love evokes love. <sighs> I know. So if I hate my voice and I think I'm not the right singer to be singing this song, that's exactly what people are going to perceive it is. But if I go in with love for the song and love for the way that I sing it, They're going to get that. I guarantee it is so much easier said than done. But that quote really spoke to me as a singer because so often I go into auditions feeling like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know I'm not the best. Let me just like get it out and then we'll be done with this and we can stop torturing each other. But they're going to get that if that's what I go in presenting.
0: And it's so, it kind of comes back to what you were talking about, like them presenting female identifying people and our culture being taught to take up less space and apologize for our existence. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Um, Totally. I I actually first ever even noticed that that was a thing that we do. I was in Germany. It was one of my first months there. And there was another uh, Polish exchange student. And he looked at me and this other American exchange student. We're all kind of running together at the time. And he was like, stop apologizing stop saying
1: i'm sorry you make me feel sorry and i was wow. like oh, wow right because it's almost burden there's so many reasons to stop apologizing but one of them that i've really noticed to myself is that it puts a burden on the person you're apologizing to to then assure you no it's okay mm-hmm. i'm fine it's almost like asking for reassurance and it unburdens both of you when we don't apologize or make qualifications for what's happening, Mm -hmm. just being it's, it's Mm -hmm. incredible. My husband is getting his master's in social work and the way that he talks about himself, like he's already a social worker is astounding to me. And I'm like, what if I could go through life like that? Just talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a singer. What about it? (laughs) But so often, like, I mean, kind of. I guess like I kind of sing sometimes, but right now I'm teaching mostly, you know, all of these (laughs) qualified to be a man and to just be like, oh, you have something to say about this? To be a man and to just be able to be like, I am in my master's to get my social work degree, and I'm a social work intern. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, you are. You're so right. Yes. I have a master's in voice. And even if I didn't, I would still, I could still be a singer, but there are things about me that I downplay. And that, like you said, femme presenting people are like, take up less space, be apologetic about singing this song that you love that we gotta get away from and that not to hearken back, but I love it so much that the Meisner technique helps us to, um, Habituate. The Meisner technique is such a spiritual practice. And one of my favorite Meisner teachers, Valley Forrester, says that the Meisner technique, she believes, is a way of living disguised as an acting technique. Oh, I know. It's good. That's good. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I am actually interested in going back to what you were saying about I am a singer, I am an artist, mm-hmm. like, and how this kind of self acceptance has influenced your work as an artist. Yeah. And how you actually produce things like you make things happen as an artist, not just as a person running Meisner in Music. Right. So I'd love to hear how that development has come along in concert
1: with your work with Meisner. It has been so freeing. I right before the pandemic took two years off of auditioning and Gwendolyn, I never worked more. It was really incredible mm. how being like, oh, I just, I'm so burnt out from this thing. And then people would think of you for things. And I would get to do all of these gigs that I really don't believe my energy would have uh, cultivated. Had I still been on the grind of auditioning, it is so valuable to audition and I'm back in it now begrudgingly, but <laughs> during that, that time really helped me during the pandemic and now at, well, I guess we're still in it during the pandemic to produce (laughs) my own stuff. And I did, I wanted to learn the role of Rosabella in most happy fella. And so I started learning it and I started thinking we got to put this into something. So we did a zoom recital and it was so joyous for me. And then during the pandemic too, I made a music video of this really funny song called scary, scary, sexy lady. It was so fun to Mm. make and it's for no one but me, but it brings me so much joy. (laughs) So (laughs) things like that, I think came out of that period of like, I just need to not audition for a couple of years, but then seeing how it blossomed into all these opportunities and gave me the confidence to feel like I can create something myself.
0: Mm-hmm. Like getting over that hump and realizing I I can actually make a thing.
1: Yeah. There's no, and that's one of the colonial things that we talked about in that carousel. There's no gatekeeper. Who, who's the gatekeeper? Me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me and the people I believe have to give me the keys. Yeah. And it's not to say that there's not systemic racism happening and that yeah. there are these there are barriers 100%. that are fundamental. Yeah. But yeah, I think realizing that we have we have so much more power than we realize.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um let me go through and make sure that I'm that I've actually gotten to
1: <laughs> <sighs> you so well, Gwendolyn. Sometimes in podcasts I feel like they're like looking over, like I'm speaking and they're on to the next question and I feel so heard by you and valued. (laughs)
0: Oh, you are. (laughs)
1: Thank you. You
0: are heard and valued. And (laughs) it is, it's, I have actually realized that that is actually what I'm here to do is hear and value and see people. And there are ways to do that. That are singing and there are ways to do that, that are not singing and I can do them. Yeah. It's like, would you say that there, that you've kind of found a, I would say like what it is when you boil everything down, like all your art, if you, all your art, all your teaching, if you throw it all in a pot and you boil it down, like what is, what is this thing that runs through it that you would see as like the salt in the bottom?
1: Of mine. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I would say sharing. I think that Meisner and music, my singing, I was going to say pain, but it's not always pain, but it is a sharing and an openness. I love the term open heartedness. Um, that I hope to cultivate in other people, but especially myself for my own healing. I think the more that I've been open with the things that I've been through and the pain and joys that I've experienced in life, the richer my art is, the richer Meisner music is. And if I'm coming from any other place that's um, not sharing, it doesn't root anything.
0: Mm, mm Mm-hmm. I wanted to get to a last uh, a last little thing. And that is you have equity and inclusion scholarships.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm kind of just saying that just in case anyone's listening who might want one. So they know that it's there. because yeah. uh, I think so much of our so much of our social system in any way is a patchwork. And um, yeah. I wish that there was just like one central spreadsheet you could go to.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: But I would love to hear about what that process was of creating that. I know you have another teacher on your staff Uh, who really stands for this work as well. Yeah. And I think there's actually, there's a whole dimension to Meister and music that that we have touched on a lot that is speaking to this whole part of the conversation that I have been learning is so central to moving our art firm forward.
1: Yeah. Which is,
0: you know, seeing and owning how we have been silencing so many people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would love to hear you speak a little more to that. Yeah. And creating this scholarship.
1: Sakile Kamara is my other teacher. She is absolutely incredible and she's a black woman. And it's been amazing for me to see how much safety I knew she would garner because of who she is, but how I've seen over the year that she's been with and music that she garners for our students that I could never, it's mm. so humbling and affirming of creating the equity and inclusion scholarship. And the reason we used to call it the diversity and inclusion scholarship. And I thought that wasn't quite right because it's not just about creating diversity in Meisner music. It's about offering equity to artists who have for centuries been marginalized in the arts and systematically silenced really. And basically I say about anyone who qualifies, if you think you qualify, you probably do. Basically, if you are a white cisgendered uh, person without a disability, you don't qualify, but everyone else does because for so long, my story has been told, and my opportunities have been far greater and far more well known than that of the people who qualify for this equity and inclusion scholarship. So it's just doing a tiny, tiny part to help make sure the arts are accessible and that everyone's voices can be heard and valued. Mm. We talked earlier about, you know, oh yeah, there's no gatekeeper and you just have to create art. And I don't mean to sound trite in that. I know that I, as a white woman, it's so easy for me to say that. And that's such a, a, a small way to say something that's so much bigger. There are gatekeepers and they have for too long left out these groups of people that need to be heard. And that's whose stories and voices are so, so valuable. So I do want to just <laughs> now I'm qualifying, aren't I? I do want to say about that moment of the no gatekeeper thing, you're absolutely right that there have been too many gatekeepers. And I don't mean to be tried about something that is so huge.
0: Hmm. Well, absolutely. And I think it is such a gift we have right now in this era of social media, in this era of like, I can just create an account and start saying shit. Yeah. And you can listen to me or not listen to me and also maybe if I'm if I'm white and pretty like more Mm -hmm. people are going to want to follow me but it's it is kind of this like well there's a there are gatekeepers but I can also keep making something and people could theoretically find me
1: yeah yeah and again to go back to that like I deserve to be singing this song I deserve to be making this art Mm -hmm. the way that I say it, or the way that Sakile and I can teach it will touch some people and it won't touch others, but at least we can create a space that helps some people and that we can say it in a way that resonates with some artists. So if you can do that, keep doing it.
0: Yeah. I think we really underestimate it. It's something I write a lot for my spiritual healers because I think it's so, it's what they're all trying to say. And I think it's also like what, um, what we also so need to hear in all areas, but it, I think I see it so much as artists is like someone is asking for you. Wow. Literally, if if there's something that you want to make, if there's something that you really care about, there's you probably care about it because someone is asking for it.
1: Wow. You
0: know that on some level.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. I feel that so much. And then we wait and wait and wait. Have you read Big Magic? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, (laughs) you (laughs) have. But I love that story that Liz Gilbert tells about that story that she had in mind. And then she just sat on it. And then her friend years later actually wrote the story. And I think we do the same thing with singing where if we feel a call to something who better to do it than me, of course there's someone better. But if I feel that calling, that's such a beautiful way to put it Gwendolyn that like someone's asking for you.
0: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. My first interview for this podcast, Trey McLaughlin, he's this um old friend of mine an incredible gospel singer um he was saying (laughs) he was saying that for years i was praying to god like god put me where you want to put me like show me your will show me what you want me to do and god was like well what do you want to (laughs) do what do you want to do yeah because
1: i'm gonna get done what i need to get done but what do you want to do yeah listen i'm god what (laughs) make your own map. Cause I'll be doing my thing. You do yours.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I'll
1: I'll make you fit. I'll make you fit into my plan, but you do what you want to do. I love that. Yeah. It reminds me of the the phrase that brings me so much comfort is what's for you will not pass you by Mm. having trouble remembering that one right now, as we get back into auditions. And I feel like there's so many rejections coming in and very little opportunity, but I believe that firmly there's something for Jillian. There's something for Gwendolyn and they're going to come along. We just have to trust that if I do the work and I draw the map, it's probably going to go in a completely different direction than I expect, but at least we're taking the steps and we're making the art.
0: And that, my friends was Jillian Page. You can follow Jillian at Jillian Page. That's J-I-L-L-I-A-N-P-A-I-G-E and Meisner and Music at Meisner and Music on Instagram. The link to register for their two-day trauma-informed virtual singing intensive on June 11th and 12th, along with the code for the early bird discount until May 4th, will be in the show notes. Keep up with the pod on Instagram at Making It in Opera and support us by telling your friends, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and pitch in some money by donating on Ko-Fi. You can find the link when you go to www.MakingItInOpera.com. Links, as always, are in the show notes of this episode. We'll be back in two weeks. See you then. Making It in Opera is a production of Sounds Like Cool Studios with editing by me. Gwendolyn Coleman.